If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in John 1 to read an opening handful of scripture verses this morning together uh, to get us uh, to put, a, I think, an incredible thought, uh, a powerful reminder on our hearts and minds today. And uh, I think it'll go along nicely with what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, uh, which is uh, a conversation about our souls. Uh, we all have one. Uh, it's hard to define it, but it's uh, hard to uh, ignore uh, that that is the most defining part of our being, our existence, which is what's my, most unique about this conversation. Uh, but again, if you have your Bibles, John 1, uh, verses 1 through 5, this is John um, writing um, in his, probably in his 80s or 90s, uh, he's, he's an older man writing at the end of the first century. Uh, and John was asked, of course, inspired by the Lord, but asked by his church members, John, we want you to preserve for us all that you know about Jesus. You walked with him. You talked with him. You're the only one that went all the way to the cross with him. John, you've seen everything. You've handled. You've touched. You've, you've witnessed so many wonderful things. John, you can't go out of this world without telling us your story. Uh, so John, being the inspired man that he was and also being an, an incredible theologian, didn't just start by saying Jesus was born or didn't just start by saying that he met Jesus one day, but he writes a prologue, a prologue that introduces Jesus and defines Jesus um, in a way that may seem kind of lofty and kind of, you know, high-minded, but is, is really John saying, this is the best I've got. If I was going to put one kind of definition to Jesus, if I was going to give you um, the simplest definition I could uh, of who Jesus is and where he came from and, and what he embodied, this would be my best guess. And of course, we know it was more than a guess. This is what John writes to us in John 1, verse 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines into darkness and the darkness did not and does not comprehend or overcome or overwhelm it. So again, we're in our final week in our study and conversation about our souls. But if you haven't been here, you picked a good week to come because we're going to have a really a kind of a, a succinct and, and, and off to itself conversation today about that intangible yet defining essence of who we are, where we live from. Uh, before we talk more about our souls, though, I want to talk a little bit about our bodies uh, because the two kind of go hand in hand or, or um, go together, right? You know, God's design for our bodies is incredible from what we see to what we can't see. You know, there are textbooks written on and there are medical professions dedicated to the different parts of our makeup and our design, which I don't think we marvel at enough that, the, that, that our bodies are so incredible and so in, intrinsically, in, in, intrinsically designed. There's so many systems that work separately and together to keep us alive. You know, the two most important parts and, and really incredible parts of our bodies, they're really specific organs, um, of course, are our heart and our brain. Now, of course, our hearts, we don't really think of them looking like that, but they do look like that. I haven't looked at mine lately, but if you look at one, that's uh, what the heart looks like. Of course, we are all familiar with what a brain looks like. Um, so these are what really are, are the most essential parts of our body. They're, they're, they're where our life flows from. Um, a, a doctor put it to me this way, that essentially our bodies are just networks of plumbing and electricity. 
our hearts pump blood to our bodies through our veins. Our brains send waves uh, by way of our nerves. And uh, of course, with the electricity and the plumbing, that's what that's where we live from. That's how we are alive. Uh, you could say that without these two organs, with their wires in their valves, without our brains in our heart, our bodies would be lifeless. Our bodies are designed so that from conception through formation, once our hearts and brains get that initial jolt in the womb, they both sort of keep each other going. Uh, they sort of pass along energy to each other, life to each other, uh, and thus the rest of the body is kept going. It's pretty miraculous if you study the much more uh, uh, you know, detailed uh, information behind those things. A way to understand it, I guess you could say, is the heart sends blood to the brain to keep it from overheating because the brain is like an engine and, and it will overheat if it doesn't have enough blood, right? And, and the brain also sends signals to the heart that keeps it primed and keeps it pumping. So again, they both complement, they both support, they both rely on each other. And of course, our bodies rely on both of them. Now, I'm not a medical expert. That's as far as my definitions can go. So if I didn't get something right, forgive me. But I think that's the simplest way I can explain it, that our bodies rely on our hearts and brains and our hearts and brains rely on each other. Now, this is something that God baked into the formation process of when we are developing um, as infants. And, and this gives us a window into how God is present and hands-on, sovereign and personal in every life that is conceived and every life that forms. Uh, it's almost as if our hearts and our brains are visible and tangible touch points given to our bodies that house and serve as fixtures for our souls. Because just behind those doors, just through those doors, we find our souls. It's not just because those things keep us alive, but it's from those things that we think and feel and have our being and have reason and, and wills you often hear the soul even equated to both our hearts and our minds. Uh, symbolically, we refer to our, our heart and our mind. Really, we're referring to our soul, right? In reality, you know, our, our brains and heart are nothing but nerves and blood. But of course, that intangible thing, our soul, the thing that we think from and feel from, of course, we think about it, we associate with our brains in our hearts. Again, we think about our minds is where we think from, our hearts where we feel from. And again, both of those things are really speaking of our soul. We all have a soul and from that soul we think and from that soul we feel. Isn't it true though that some of us, we are more attuned with, we are more aligned with one side of that coin than the other. Maybe it's true for you. Maybe you're an equal balance of both. If you're married to that person, you're very, very lucky, right? Most of us, we're lopsided one way or the other. We think a lot or we don't feel at all, or we feel everything and we don't think much. And that's kind of how human nature has resulted a lot of us. Uh, some of us were more thoughtful, uh, some of us are more emotional, and I don't mean that in, in a punitive way. Some of us, we're more cognitively wired. We're more, you know, we're more thoughtful or thinking people, and others of us are, are more emotional. We're more uh, instinctive and intuitive in the way that we live. I, I guess you could say it. Some of us always go with the facts, and some of us go with the flow or how things feel. And, and, and I'm sure some of you would raise your hand to the facts part and some of you raise your hand to the flow part. And, and, and we often get a little aggravated when someone isn't wired exactly like us, don't we? Um, now, some of us, we are so much 
in one of these camps that we're outright uncomfortable thinking about living on the other side of the street. Some of us were blends of both. Some of us were a nice balance. Uh, Again, some of us are landslides. Uh, If I may, though, if I may, I suspect the divide between our hearts and minds, between our thoughts and our feelings, between facts and feelings, I believe that that may yet be another example of how sin has worked its way to remove us from our ideal state how sin contributed to our fallen state. And this is why I think we struggle to find a balance in and of ourselves. And, and, and this is why that deep down our souls are all crying out in different ways, but ultimately our souls are all crying out for the same answer, for the same solution. For some of us, it isn't an issue of whether we know what to do or that we have to learn what to do, but we don't have the ability to do it that we could figure out what to do, but we just can't find the strength or the wherewithal mentally, emotionally, or physically. We just can't seem to find the ability to do it. If it was all about facts, we would always be fine. But sometimes there's a feeling part that we just can't seem to figure out. Now, for others of us, it isn't an issue of whether we have the ambition, the fight, the want to, the desire, the ability, but it's just that the numbers aren't working out. The cut and paste answer is just not there for us and we struggle with that. And if we could, we would, but the facts are we can't. Now, sometimes we have the answer, we just can't apply it. Sometimes we're trying everything, we just can't find anything. And just like we've talked about with our bodies, our literal brains and our literal hearts are wired together. They just can't function apart from each other. And if one little thing is off in one of the directions, it can affect the entire body. It can affect our entire lives. We're dependent on their partnership. And likewise, our soul's full health and strength depend on our symbolic heart and our symbolic mind, our hearts and minds flowing together, working together in harmony. And if we're being honest, there's often a great disconnect between these two realms of our lives, between these two parts of our souls. When something's not right with our souls, whether it's a lack of knowledge or a lack of vision, a lack of feeling or a loss of feeling, we are, we are left feeling incomplete. Maybe you've been in one, on one side of, uh, or the other. You have the heart, but you just don't have the knowledge. You have the ambition, you have the desire, but you just can't make it work. And you've done everything you know to do and you fought beyond what normal people would fight. But the numbers aren't there, the facts aren't there, the reality is not working in your favor. Maybe you've been there. You have the the strength, but you don't have the vision, the sight, the knowledge. Or maybe you have the knowledge, you've got the vision, you can see it in your head but you just don't have the heart. You just don't have the strength. You just don't have the ambition and you're exhausting yourself because your mind can make it work. But the rest of your being just can't seem to do it. This is why, and I honestly, and I'm not trying to say we live in, I'm not trying to imagine some idealistic world where everybody has always the best intentions. But I think this is the source of the, of the tension between all of us. This is the source between all the disagreements, all the frustration, all the arguments, all the I don't get along with them because many of us, we have the heart and not the knowledge and others have the knowledge, but not the heart. Have you ever been at either place? Maybe you're there right now, but have you ever been at either side of the coin? Can anybody relate to this state? 
All of us have our strengths, but those strengths can be made virtually obsolete by our weaknesses, can't they? I don't know about you, sometimes those weaknesses feel like more to me. They feel like wounds to my very soul. That sometimes as strong as my strengths may be, my weaknesses feel like they're holding them back twice as much. And that can be pretty demoralizing, can it? Sometimes coming to terms with our weaknesses and our wounds can be sort of jarring. It's like an awakening for us. We realize we have limits and we realize we aren't all powerful. And sometimes we respond to this reality. Um, The way we respond makes all the difference. And and I don't think it's a secret. Y'all know me. If you don't know me, uh, you probably could have, you probably could, could figure this out. I'm more of a thinker. I'm more of a problem solver. I, I, I can do equations that last 20 pages long and I can figure it out and I can smile and feel good about it. But when it involves feelings, whew, I'm out. You know, it, when, it, when it involves, uh, and I, I don't give up, but I just lose heart very quickly because when it involves something that I just can't tangibly wrap my arms around or put my hands on or figure out with a pen and a paper, um, I, I get discouraged very quickly. And that's just kind of how I'm wired. And I'm, that's just kind of how sin has affected me, maybe that, if that's the way you want to look at it. But sometimes my heart fails for fear. My flesh grows weary trying to imagine or realize or implement what on paper should work. As a pastor, it's probably my greatest weakness. I, I, I can make it all work on paper, but trying to communicate that has been something I've struggled with for years and worked very hard on to make sure that this is more than just information, but it's something that can be digested and something that can be applied. And that's the goal that I work toward every week. But again, that's my weakness that I struggle with. And in my personal life, um, it's it even more of an issue, but, but maybe you're someone who the opposite is true for. Maybe you don't lack the grit or you don't lack the heart. You don't lack the determination, but you often try to push forward without any solid evidence or resources. But when the numbers aren't working out, when the cards aren't in your favor, no amount of effort can overcome that kind of hurdle. Uh, So I don't know if the room's even split. might be 70, 30, one way or the other, but I bet we can all relate to at least one of these realities. And maybe I've made it a little bit too real for you. I apologize about that, but I think it's good that we're kind of raw and exposed talking about this today. I think if we're being honest, we all feel the woundedness. That's not a word, but it sounds good. We all feel the woundedness of our souls on some days, maybe more than others. We all sense the wounded nature of our souls. And this isn't to say there's something, this isn't to say there's a flaw about you. It's just that we're all wounded and we all have strength. We all have weaknesses and that's who we are. And we need to be honest about that rather than trying to put band-aids over things that we can't fix. Now, if you haven't, at some point you'll wake up and it'll dawn on you that you carry around some pretty heavy wounds. Maybe you were born with them. Maybe they came along later. I don't know how it worked for you, but some of us were wired that way. Some of us, we end up that way. We're damaged. And that's just how life happens and how, how life leaves us. Uh, the worst part of it, though, isn't the fact that we can't make things happen or can't overcome these wounds, but it's the fact that we often can see what we need. We just can't seem to get there. We know what would make things better or if this could happen, that would help, but we can't seem to get the A to B to connect. A few weeks ago, we opened this conversation with a reflection on the ancient world and we talked about as bad as the world may be today, the ancient world was far worse because there was no spiritual rest or refuge on the table. That the world in the, in, ancient, in the ancient world, there was no spiritual rest or refuge available or offered to the world. 
not in or anyone of this world. Nothing, could, nothing of this world could give rest or refuge to people. But God sent his son, Jesus, to be one of us and to be one with us. And what we've learned is that Jesus is our refuge and our rest. And he is what our souls are looking for. And there's nothing else and no one else that could ever offer us the kind of spiritual rest and refuge that he alone does and that he alone provides. If you're wondering why we sing about Jesus like we do, why we pray to Jesus like we do, if you're wondering why we gather in Jesus' name in Jesus' church like we do, it's because we have heard and we believe and we have experienced and can confirm that he alone gives rest and refuge for our souls. This is why we work so hard to, to make sure our church clearly states this because we all need refuge and we all need rest and only in Christ can we find it. Yet as much as I can state that clearly and as bold as I can make that, I struggle to always live in that rest and, re and realize that refuge in my life. We all do, don't we? I, it's because there are these obvious apparent wounds that work against us. If our minds aren't working against us, our hearts are working against us and vice versa. Some days we're all too familiar and reminded of this, aren't we? Some days we wake up to this and we go to bed aware of this. We can't get it off our minds and others remind us of this. Usually the people that are closest to us remind it to us. My hope with this conversation and these recent conversations, especially today's, is that we can have a similar awakening around Jesus as the one who can help us. Not get rid of these wounds, but tend to them and treat them and find rest and refuge within them. Our souls are always looking for answers as to why things never get better. And honestly, sometimes they only get worse. Our wounded hearts, our wounded minds, our wearied souls cry out for answers. And Jesus alone can give us the answers that we need. What are those answers? You ask. Like we talked earlier, sometimes, most of the time, we either feel like something, we either feel or know that something isn't right, but we neither have the strength or the knowledge to make things right. Can you relate to that? You feel like something isn't right, but you don't have the strength to make it right. You know something isn't right, but you don't even know what would be right. You just know that where you're at isn't right. If you can relate to that, let me just say that you're in great company because the apostle Paul wrote about this very reality, not as someone, not as someone he was before he got saved, but as a Christian, as a believer, he wrote about living in this reality. So if you're someone today that you would say, you know what, I'm a thinker and I struggle when it has to do with feelings and ambition and determination, I can figure it out, but I have trouble applying it. Or if you're someone that you are all about heart and grit and ambition, but you just really kind of struggle with the facts of it all and struggle kind of figuring out what's right and what's wrong and what you should or shouldn't do. So if you're on either side of those camps, or if you're a little bit of both, which is okay, the apostle Paul says, you and I are just alike. And I think that because God inspired him the way that he did, Paul writes in such a way that whichever side of the coin you're on, you think he's writing about you. 
because that's how God's word is. It's always personal. It's always applicable to each and every one of us. So in Romans 7, I want to show you this before we get back into John, because listen to how Paul writes about his own struggle. And in this, in this writing, he doesn't say that he always knew what was right or he always knew how to make things right, but he does express that he wishes he could. And if he had the solution in and of himself, he would do it. But he admits that he doesn't, which is an important step for us to take today. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You ever been there? Paul says, I, I, I know that what I'm doing is not good for me. I know the lifestyle, the situation, the things I repeat. I know they're not for my good. I know they're not my best. Whether I can't make the numbers work out or whether I don't have the strength to work it out. It's just not what it should be. I want better, but I feel like there's something limiting me. There's something inhibiting me from getting where I want to be. He says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, I, I think he's being, he's being hyperbolic there. He's trying to say, listen, I know that there's nothing in me that's working in favor of me. Paul's saying, I feel like there's something working against me. And we'll talk about that. In my flesh, I've got things trying to work against me. But Paul says, but deep down, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the ambition but I don't have the strength. I know what the Bible says, but I can't correlate it to me. For I do not do the good I want. And, and Paul might not even, be, he would say for you, you might not even know what the good is. You just know it's above where you're at. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And then he makes this pretty, desperate cry at the end of that passage wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death Paul's like, I'm, I feel like I'm trapped I'm trapped in this incomplete imperfect literally dying state who can deliver me who can save me notice he says who because he knows that a what's not going to help now, of course, he already knows the answer to the solution and he already has experienced the answer. He's just trying to help us relate. And of course, he says in the next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is pretty, pretty definitive, right? Pretty declarative. He's saying, I know that through Jesus Christ, I can find the knowledge that I lack and the strength that I lack. If it's knowledge you lack, Christ can give you that which you need. If it's wisdom, if it's guidance, if it's direction, Christ is that wisdom, that direction, that guidance. If it's ambition, if it's strength, if it's ability, Christ is that ability, that strength, that ambition. What this describes is, and here's something very important I want us to talk about, and we're going to reiterate throughout this message. This describes not just a one-time moment of salvation, because this is Paul writing as a saved man who continued to struggle with this, which is important for us to admit that even as Christians, we haven't got it figured out. 
And if we in our pride refuse to admit this, we're not ever going to get any help. So what Paul is saying here is not a one-time fix-all, but a full-time, for-all-time relationship with a Savior. You hear that? A relationship with the one who saves and continues to work salvation through and in us. This is different than religion. It's what makes religion and Christianity distinct and opposite of each other. Religion makes it all about a day and an hour, a place, a service, a single experience. And that may inform for you my approach, our approach, the ministry that we put on here at Risen Church. My goal is not to create some illusion that everything can be made right and well through something that may happen here or something I might say. But I believe that if we provide tangible, practical, effective doses of scriptural prescriptions that you can be inspired by what we learn and have something to lean on for the week and for your days to come. My goal is that we might come to know and trust and follow Jesus as our Savior in such a way that he changes our lives for the better and continually and daily tends to our wounds. Because we bear them, especially as Christians, we all bear them. This might be a tough conversation for some of us to admit because religion treats us to hide these wounds and defend these wounds and lie about these wounds. But Jesus says, if you want my help, we've got to expose those wounds. This is not a promise that struggles will be resolved, but a promise that our wounds can come under his constant healing, care, and power. And if you don't, if, if there's something in you that's, that, that's crying out for help this morning, to wake up to something better than what religion has, has convinced you is all there is, I hope this can be some good news for somebody today. Our wounds whether in our minds or hearts or somewhere in between, our wounds can come under his constant healing power. Again, this might not be an erasure of the wound, but it can be and it does mean an answer for when our souls cry for help. That as we bear the burdens of our weaknesses and our wounds, as we are reminded and frustrated by our wounds, we can have an opposite and greater awakening to Jesus saving power don't you want that? That we can learn to trust in him and see in him come alongside of us and strengthen us and enable us. That's who Jesus is. That's the gospel. That's the heartbeat of God towards us. And that's where we've opened up to John. Why we've opened up to John chapter one. John gives this definitive authoritative statement about Jesus. He is the word of God. He is God's prescription to fill our incompleteness, to heal our wounds, to help our struggles. He is God's message to us, God's unified word that brings light and hope to us with a promise that no measure of darkness is too dense for him to shine through. I don't know what you struggle with, emotionally, mentally, or somewhere in between. I don't know what your sinful struggles are. I don't know what your fallen tendencies are, and they're not, even, they're not really always sinful. They're just parts of our brokenness. I don't know what they are for you, but I do know that no measure of darkness is too thick for his light to get through. Down in verse 14, John continues to define Jesus in another way. 
the word, he says, hey, the word of God, the final, full, declarative, definitive word of God, that's who Jesus is. Well, he's better than just a spoken word in heaven. He became a man. Look at 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the Greek there is the, is the word tabernacled which is meant to make the Jewish ears perk up a little bit because they knew about the tabernacle very well, didn't they? The tabernacle, if you aren't familiar, was the tent that Moses and his followers would set up in the wilderness where they would meet and worship the Lord. Now, the tabernacle was not a permanent fixture at first, but they would set it up every evening as after they had traveled as far as they could each day. Sometimes they couldn't travel for several days because of sandstorms or heat. Sometimes they would camp out for an extended period of time for a festival. But the tabernacle was their means of saying, God, I've done all I can do, and now I'm looking for answers from you. It was their platform to commune with God, to seek God, to get answers from God. But over time, the tabernacle became a permanent temple if you're familiar. And it was always a picture of man's attempts to meet with God on his or her time in a stagnant, static appointment way. That's what religion has always been and will always be. And too many people have made Christianity just another version of that. We come, we attend, we, we try, we work hard, and then we leave disappointed and go back through our lives and our struggles, we still lack something. We still need saving. The gospel is, the good news is that Jesus is this savior. He's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And this is, this is the heart of what it means to be saved full of grace and truth. So Jesus, what does it mean to know him as your savior? He is both truth and grace. He is both clarity for when you don't know what to do and conviction that you should do it. You hear that? He is truth and grace. He gives you direction and he gives you determination. Religion says, here's what you should do, good luck. Living for this world says, well, do what feels good for you and, and you'll be fine. But only through Jesus do we have both the clarity of what is right and what is best and the actual power from God to overcome our flesh and give us the ability and strength to do what is right and what is best. Do you see how it takes both and there can't be one without the other because you go way off to the extremes if you do. No matter which you lack, he provides truth and grace. He never supplies nor applies one without the other. Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus you follow? Because a lot of people meet in buildings like this on Sunday morning and they only go one way or the other. And they don't have life because of that. Because we talked about it, without the brain, the heart can't work. And without the heart, the brain can't work. Let me ask, is Jesus just some idol to you, some monolith, some relic? Is he someone that started something and now, you know, and you just kind of bypass him in an impersonal way? Or is he someone that you know dynamically and personally? Why would you settle for the alternative? If we do that, then we make Jesus just another Moses, which is what John refers to in, down in verse 16. Of his fullness, we've received grace for grace. For the law was written by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think it's very important that John separates law and truth. 
And he also makes it very clear there was no grace back then. Only through Jesus do we get grace but in, in ability, but only through Jesus do we get truth that can actually guide us because the law will only condemn us. But this tells us that it's more than just admiring someone, more than just acknowledging someone. It's not enough to get our souls the answers they're looking for to help the help they're looking for. That's what religion does. But he mentions Moses. I want to remind you about how Moses died. And, and the way Moses died is very important that, that, that distinguishes him from Jesus and distinguishes religion from Christianity. When Moses died, Deuteronomy 34 says that God took Moses up to Mount Nebo and the Lord showed him all the promised land that he had been working towards for 40 years. And then God says to him, this is the land that I showed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes but you shall not go over there. You know what that application is for us? Religion can show you what you ought to do and make you feel bad about not doing it, but it can't get you across the line. It just condemns you in your place. It can help us see where we need to be, but it can't get us there. It can't take us there. But John says that Jesus came to reveal God to us, that Jesus is both the spark that enlightens our mind and empowers our heart. He is our awakening. Only through him can our souls wake up to true salvation. Let me kind of summarize what happens after this for you real quickly. The rest of this chapter is about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, not the writer of the story, that's John the disciple. But John the Baptist, the story goes that John was a way maker for Jesus. He was a, 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 a preparing the way. John left the temple establishment and took all the people down to the Jordan River and said, guys, God's doing something different than what they're doing in the temple. That's religion. This is something real. This is a relationship with God. Only going to happen through this Messiah that God is sending us. So John is calling people away from religion uh, down to the Jordan River. He has his own followers. But then over time, John gets word from God that this uh, Messiah is coming. And as in he's coming down in verse number 29, he literally shows up at the Jordan River. And John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now here's an important distinction. This is not saying he takes away just our sin because he does do that. Our individual struggles and failures and weaknesses. But this is bigger than this. This is the sin that has thrown its blanket over the whole world. The sin that always holds humanity back. The sin that darkens our minds, that burdens our hearts. The sin that is causing humanity to struggle and causing us to seem like we're going up a hill that we never will progress. That Jesus came to alleviate that burden, to give us resurrection, to strengthen that which was left wounded by sin. John goes on to say later on in that chapter, John literally tells his disciples, one of them was named John also, John the disciple of Jesus. John the writer of this book was originally John the disciple of John. Must have got confusing for them, right? John the disciple is following John the Baptist and John says, listen, you don't need to follow me anymore. I can't do you any good. I've only been useful to point you to him. And now that he's here, I must decrease, he must increase. And people said, John, you're gonna lose your movement. You're gonna lose your following. You're gonna lose everything. And John says, good for me. I can't help you. I'm just pointing to the one that can. 
man, if we were that humble, what kind of help we could give the world. Anyway, John, the disciple, unfollows John the Baptist and follows Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, where are you going? Who are you, you know, what are you all about? And Jesus says those famous words, follow me, come and see. John, if you're going to follow me, this isn't just show up on Sundays. This isn't just show up once a week to the temple. This isn't just do, do this or do that and try your best. This is, I want you to be all in. I want a relationship with you. Are you willing to put everything behind you and follow me? That's the question that comes over all of us today. Are we following Jesus? Allowing him to constantly attend our wounds, relying on him, his grace and his truth to change us in all circumstances. This is more than a daily check-in, more than a weekly pit stop. This is a relationship. Do I believe there's a moment in time when you begin following Jesus? Of course, that's how linear time works. You start something. But some people have nothing but a moment in time. They don't have anything past that. And that's what concerns me. And that's what concerned Jesus. I don't really care how you got here. I care that you are here and that you're moving forward from here. The enemy freezes many of us because he makes us sensitive to religion and tradition more than we are to truth and grace. What, should, what we should be most interested in is obtaining the rest and refuge that is only in Christ Confessing our sins, following Jesus, acknowledging our wounds, and allowing him to attend to us and answer our soul's cry. Before we close, over in John 5, there's an episode where Jesus attends a Jewish festival. And this festival really showed how tightly the grip of religion was on society. At this festival, there was a legend centered around a fountain in the middle of the city. Legend had it that if enough people showed up and enough faith was, you know, put up, an angel might show up, might, and would stir the water. And if you could get exposed to the water, you might be healed. A lot of mites might show up, might be healed, maybe not. In a world full of literal wounded and broken people, it was just the thought of might was enough to make this the most packed event of the year. With every wounded person that came, some loved one would attend with them to help them get their way to the water. But I want you to imagine this. This is like the biggest festival you've ever been to times two. They were elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, literally walking on top of each other. There was some semblance of a line, but it was more of a free-for-all when things allegedly went down. Of course, Jesus made his way to this festival one day and he was completely overwhelmed by what he saw. He saw people that were a part of a system that never offered any true help, never gave true healing to their greatest needs, a system that could not answer their greatest questions. And on this one day a year, it seemed that it could actually make a difference. People would cling to the elusive hope that was at hand. Over in John 5, it says that Jesus went to this festival and and. and it says that he saw a great multitude of people waiting, laying, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the water to move. They waited and waited and came years again and again, and they never found any help. Let me ask you, have you ever, really, I know all of us have, where have you misplaced your hope? I was going to ask, have you ever misplaced your hope? But of course you have. Where have you misplaced your hope before? 
and a person, a place, or a thing. For years, the Jews held on to this religious tradition and pageantry. For years, they were disappointed again and again. And I find the description of those assembled for this festival to be pretty powerful. Not that they weren't physically wounded, but I think the spiritual application is even greater for us. At this festival, there were people who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. There were people that did not have any vision. They did not have the knowledge of how to make things better for themselves. They could not see to do so. There were people that did not have the feeling or ability to do anything for themselves. Now, whether or not you're physically in those categories, I think all of us can relate to that spiritually, can't we? That all of us, whether it's our hearts or our minds, we lost or lack vision, we lost or lack the ability or feeling or heart. We can all relate to these wounds. Well, the story narrows on one specific man, a disabled man who was paralyzed and lame, and he had been struck for four decades. He'd been attending events like this almost as long, and he was in line because everyone had been carried to this place, and they were gated off to create some sort of spectacle for, the, for people to observe, the angel, if it was to show up. Uh, when the angel allegedly stirred the water, the gates would be dropped, and people would be carried, or they would limp, or they would crawl, hoping for a miracle, hoping that the water might splash on them. There was this long line of sorts. Everyone had to stay in their place. And Jesus walks up to this one man. He passes all these other people. There's hundreds of people there. He walks up to this one man. He says, hey, buddy, how you doing? You want to get better? Do you want to be healed? And I think the man looked at him and said, are you kidding? Do you know how I got here? Uh, every year I have to arrange special travel arrangements. I have to pay someone to bring me here, drop me off. Then I have to pay someone to help me when the angel shows up, allegedly. I have to pay that person to help me limp my way to the pool. Do you think I want to get better? Of course I want to get better. That's why I'm here. Jesus says, do you want to be healed. And he says, sir, I want to get better, but I have no one to get me to the water. I had someone arranged, but they bailed out and now I can't get there. And when the water gets stirred and the people start running, they're going to step on me and trample me. I'm never going to get better, sir. Unless you're willing to help, of course. Do I want to be healed? Is that a serious question? Of course I want to be healed. And then Jesus says the most insensitive thing possible to this man. Step out of line. I can't walk, Jesus. I can't step out of line. And oh, by the way, if I were to get out of line, I would lose my place in line and I might not ever get my chance at the water. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You have been come convinced that the only hope for you is to stay in this world's line. And that only if you do things the way the world tells you to do or the, or the religion tells you to do, you have been convinced and deceived by this world that unless you stay in its line, you'll never get where you want to be, right? If I get out of line, I'm never going to get there in time. And we make that excuse again and again and again when God shows up and actually wants to make a sizable actual difference in our lives. Church, the message is, Jesus says the system is broken. The line is a lie. It's never going to get you 
where you think or where it's been told it's going to get you? Do you want to get well? Do you want help? Do you want truth? Do you want grace? Do you want the knowledge of what is right and wrong? Or do you want the ability to be able to do what is right and not do what is wrong? In the Bible, in the Psalms, there's this refrain that you read in in the Old Testament where people would cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? (laughs) And then comes Jesus and he asks us a question. Will you step out of your line and find and follow the Savior you've always wanted? The Holy Spirit takes this invitation internally, enlightens and empowers us. And he brings that to us today. Will you step out of your line? The system that you're convinced is the only way you can live life and the only answer for your problems. Will you step out of that line and find and follow a Savior that actually can help you and that is actually what your soul's always wanted? So I gotta ask you, what line are you in that isn't taking you anywhere? Just be honest. It's not moving. It's never gonna move. How much longer are you gonna wait in that line? We're blind, we're disabled, we're numb. The longer we wait, the worse our problems get. Have you ever looked to Jesus as the one who can both reveal God to you and make him real within you? Have you? Have you ever looked at Jesus and believed that he can reveal God to you in a personal way and make him real to you in a spiritual, literal way? Have you ever trusted and relied on him as the source for truth and grace, clarity and conviction, direction and determination? God can give you this today. God is always inviting us to step out of line. If only we would allow God to wake up our soul's greatest need to our hearts and minds' greatest cries. Just like this man, he thought, if I ever get out of line, I might not get there in time. When in reality, if he did not step out of line, he was going to run out of time. Maybe there's a part of you that's just not where it should be. Maybe your mind is confused. You can't get clarity or certainty about the direction you want for your life, the path you should take. Jesus offers you truth. He shows you God as the one you should live for and follow with all of your soul. Maybe your heart is burdened. You just have so many emotions and fears and anxieties. You can't find assurance or strength that you need to overcome. Jesus offers you this grace that enables and empowers you that can give you new and better life. The question is, will you follow him? Not just a one-time meeting at an altar, but will you trust him with all of your heart? Will you follow him with all of your being? Will you pursue him with your life? Will you step out of line and allow him to be your savior and daily depend on and walk with him as the source for what your mind and your heart are desperate for that you will not find? anywhere or in anyone else in this world. If that does not describe your relationship with God, I promise you it can be better than what you've settled for. You can follow Jesus and you can know his truth and his grace and his, he can change and he will change your life. Not just a moment in time, but a relationship for a lifetime. Let me pray for you. 
Father, thank you so much for this refuge you provided our souls over the last couple of weeks. But Lord, today, Lord, it's a difficult conversation to admit our weaknesses, to admit our wounds and to be honest about them and to expose them, to allow you to, to, to come before you in honesty and, and, and transparency and say, God, I've been trying to cover this up. I've been trying to work around it my own way. I've been trying to do it the way the world taught me or where religion taught me. And, and I can see where I want to be, but I can't get there. God, I don't know what the needs are today, but I know somebody's heart is hurting. Someone's mind is wondering. Somebody wants some clarity. Somebody wants some ability. Somebody needs answers, and only you can awaken their soul to what they need the most, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, maybe there's somebody here today that they met Jesus a long time ago, and they shook hands, and they, they did the deal, but they've walked away from him, and they want something real. Lord, would you bring them back and would you help them see what a true relationship with Jesus is and what it can do for their lives and for all of us? Can you renew us around this truth today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.